1: Hi, this is Steve Ray and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. This week, I'm pleased to have as a guest Burkhardt Nessen of Rabobank. Burkhardt welcome to the show.
2: Hey, wonderful to be here. I love doing podcasts.
1: So to that end, you do your own podcast. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, it's not too dissimilar from what you do here. Uh, you know, we, we tend to invite uh, high-profile guests, so I would never be allowed on my own show, but that sounds like I'm insulting yours. Uh, no, but uh, we basically <laughs> have people from Constellation Brands, uh, ABI, uh, Wall Street Journal on to talk about the beverages industry for people who make decisions in the beverage industry. So I should say it's called Liquid Assets. It's a very good show. And uh, you know, thanks for having me on yours.
1: And it's, it's available wherever podcasts are sold, kind of a thing. Okay.
2: If you don't know how to find a podcast, um, how are you listening <laughs> to this?
1: Tell us a little bit about your role and responsibility at Rabobank.
2: Yeah, Rabobank is a bank. It's a, does banky stuff, uh, and it uh, it finances and um, supports the the beverages industry. Uh, within that context, I'm kind of their internal expert on the on beverages and and the workings of the market. And so, you know, I build networks and do research and produce podcasts. And it just so happens one of my principal remits is e-commerce. And uh, why is that my remit? I'm under 40 years old. And uh, that's basically it. I am young. And therefore, my business said, Burkhardt, e-commerce, your thing.
1: Yeah, I remember there was a movie back in the 70s, I think, and said, son, I only have one word for you, plastics. Dustin Hoffman and the graduate. And that dates me. Anyway, so let's cut to the chase about e-commerce. And you recently published a document called the e-commerce playbook 2022, which I think is a seminal publication. And I think it's uh, opened a lot of people's eyes to some fundamental issues that they have to deal with because they're mission critical these days. And uh, the big conclusions that you came to. Or why don't you tell us?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's helpful to understand what the report is. So the report is basically me going out into the market and figuring out how big the U.S. alcohol e-commerce market is. And that's a very hard task. I don't know any organizations or data sources that do it as well as I do. And so that's its top line thing. The top line thing is this is how big the opportunity is. But that's not the takeaway I want companies to have. the The takeaway I want companies to have is, you know, Here, this is the opportunity, but the real problem isn't, you know, the size of the opportunity, but that alcohol companies aren't investing enough in their e-commerce capabilities and they're underestimating the work it takes to succeed online. And they're underestimating, more importantly, uh, how much online sales, e-commerce, digital retail media, and your overall digital presence influences your brand's performance online and off.
1: Okay, that that's a lot of meat to cover, so let's jump right into it. And the last point about uh, how important it is for brand communications is one I think that's often overlooked, and people, executives tend to hold e-commerce and for that matter, social media to a higher standard than they would traditional advertising. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think fundamentally there's this uh, at the core of of my message is something called digitally influenced sales, right? Digitally influenced sales are basically the idea that every time somebody sees your brand, uh, it's an opportunity to tell your story. And whether that's on a website or in a store with a merchandising sign or, you know, an expert review with a 90 point rating on it, whatever, like those are all chances to, to build your brand. And because consumers are more buried in their phone uh, than ever, and they're more likely to walk into oncoming traffic than look at a billboard, the chances are first time they're going to see your brand is on the internet. And if your brand isn't looking beautiful and isn't looking great, it's not going to perform and get people's attention in store and online. Why do people or executives apply a different standard to digital media, say, Social media spend or, or retail media spend—it comes fundamentally down to the idea that you know you can more easily measure digital media's performance in terms of return on advertising spend or ROAS. But if you negate those digitally influenced sales, you know you're going to undervalue it. So I think that's the fundamental problem there.
1: So e-commerce has grown dramatically. The numbers I think you've used was I think something like four to six percent prior to the pandemic, six to eight percent of total sales now and heading towards 12 to 15 and on to 20 and perhaps even more. One of the points you made is that as e-commerce increases, there will be an inflection point where it exceeds traditional off-premise sales. Can you comment on that?
2: Yeah. So before the pandemic, wine sales specifically less than 4% were online in the U.S. Now it's more than, than 10%, closer to 11% and uh in terms of uh percentage of sales that's getting really close to the the you know 20% of on premise sales that that uh you know in terms of uh volumes that that um wine brands sell in the on premise and it's a very good moment because uh as i just kind of pointed out a lot of people are in Discovering your brands for the first time online, and more than anything, the online consumer tends to be way younger and wealthy and uh you know more urban than your typical consumer and This is a consumer that the wine industry has been terrified about losing for for so long If you want to find them, they're probably going to be online and so it's you know the e commerce is as much a brand building and marketing channel as it is a sales channel, and it is a tenth of uh, wine sales overall in the US. And, uh, you know, it's probably a moment to recognize that the e-commerce space is starting to look and sound a lot like the on-premise, both in scale and purpose. And if you look as a brand, the resources and uh, resourcing you give to your on-premise business, and then look at the resourcing you give to e-commerce business, it might be a fairly good indicator of whether or not you're investing enough. And the answer is almost universally, no, as a company you're not investing enough.
1: So to be clear, though, we're not saying that on-premise is going away. We're merely saying that the size of uh, that piece of the business is going to be eclipsed by e-commerce and that on-premise still plays a significant role. Obviously, it's where you can taste something, which is the one thing you can't do. But
2: that's also really important to you understand that e-commerce is also where you can taste something, right? If somebody's buying your brand for the first time online, that is not an online-only transaction. Eventually, there's a box that arrives your house and inside the box is a bottle. And you grab the bottle, you put it in your mouth, or if, you, if you're like me, you pour it in a glass, and you taste the wine and you hold the bottle and you check it out and you're like, wow, this is really cool. Chances are, next time you see that wine in a supermarket, you're gonna buy it there too because it was good and delicious, right? So it's really important to understand that e-commerce is a driver of trial, as a driver of discovery. Um, the way that brands are able to tell their story online is very analogous to the on-premise and in terms of scale, it's getting really close to the same size. So I think it is really important for, for you to use you know, that as a guide to what your investment in e-commerce should be. Okay, but
1: one point about on-premise is what you were talking about happens asynchronously. On-premise happens at the point of purchase, either immediately before or rejection, whatever it happens to be. I don't think that's ever going to go away with a food product or something that you put in your mouth. That's always going to be the ultimate arbiter. I agree. The other point that you made I thought that was really shocking was a quote about wine.com and only 5% of the brands doing a good job of optimizing their presence online. Could you explain more about that?
2: Yeah. So it might surprise you, but I have to tell a lot of companies that it is their responsibility to manage their brand's presence and the content of their brand on retailers' websites, right? So if we think of a total wine and more, It is your brand's responsibility to send your brand's content to Total Wine and More. It is your company's responsibility to send the images and descriptions to wine.com. And so I was at a panel uh, with uh, somebody from wine.com back in January, and uh, I asked them because I was moderating, hey, you know, you guys have thousands of suppliers selling to you guys. How many of those wineries are proactively sending you content, meaning that they say hey i want to make sure that the right image is there and i want to send you the right you know the the right descriptions and i want to make my brand come to life on wine.com which is the place where a lot of people will discover it for the first time and they said only 5% one in 20 wineries are proactively sending them content and when wine.com reaches out about 45% then reply with something that leaves 50% sending nothing and only 5% actively managing their brand online. And I'm not sure if there's, if somebody at a retailer said, Hey, you know, do you want to build a display for your brand as an end cap? Do you want to build a display for your brand in this retailer place? And you never respond to that email. I mean, come on like that. Please, please, please. This is really important uh, for brands to do. And they just don't do it
1: yet. It's the reality. So when you say you, the brand was uh, the phrase you use? but whose responsibility is it? Because nobody seems to be assuming the responsibility. So it could be when you say the brand, is it the brand owner? Is it the export manager? Is it the marketing manager, especially for export brands? Is it the salespeople that are in the US or the brand ambassadors? Is it, is it the importer? Is it the distributor? All the way down the line there. And the answer is no, it's none of those.
2: Who is? Kind of. The reality is... is... It's no
1: one of those is the way I wanted to say that.
2: So one of the challenges is that companies that are incredibly Good at managing the brands online have one thing in common, they invest in people, right? They have a dedicated e-commerce person. They have a dedicated e-commerce team. For smaller brands, that's not always an option. So you have a bunch of choices to make. Personally, I think it is the brand's responsibility, and you know, use your existing infrastructure to make sure that information ends up in the right hands, right? So if you're an import brand and you have a brand manager that's producing content, make sure that. You know, there is somebody on your team that has that responsibility and then transfers that information to the relevant parties, you know in the end market. I think it's also worth saying that uh, you know for a single brand, one of the reasons content is so hard is that each retailer has a different set of content, different set of requirements, and a different process for receiving that information. And for a single brand, it can be very difficult to learn all of those things all from scratch from nothing. right? That's where a distributor can be really helpful. And it's really important as, as importers and, and, and distributors kind of tackle the e-commerce challenge and content within that, this is a skill set that your partners need to have. And it's something that if they don't have, you need to lobby them to, to get because uh, your distributors going to be able to create huge efficiencies by doing this for the brands in their portfolio. Uh, and, and I would really think the future is, and a major criteria for selecting a distributor is that skill set? Can you help me manage my brand in the internet?
1: The assumption being that someone has a choice in distribution and when you're new, I'm, I'm thinking about new brands and oftentimes it's whoever says yes first or whoever says yes.
2: Yeah. But even then the simple reality is, is that as a new brand, there's an expectation that you build your brand. In the, like you cannot get, hand your brand off to a distributor and expect them to sell it and and you know open up all these new accounts. You're expected to to go out and put the pe- feet on the ground and and do the brand development and prove that you're going to back up the brand. And if you're putting all that work in and there's somebody on the ground, then make sure that person has e-commerce or at least you know content management as part of their skill set. So you can control that. And if eventually if your brand is growing and getting some, you know, traction, you can start lobbying or pushing for, you know, your partners to, to support the brand online and in store, just like you'd expect them to do in, in any important channel.
0: Are you enjoying this podcast? Don't forget to visit our YouTube channel, Mama Jumbo Shrimp, for fascinating videos covering Stevie Kim and her travels across Italy and beyond, meeting winemakers, eating local foods, and taking in the scenery.
1: So the point I was trying to make before, and I think we're both saying the same thing, because there are so many people involved, there's nobody in in charge. And that ultimately somebody in senior management either has to take charge or assign responsibility for that. And that person has to come up with a plan to pull together the resources that they need. One of the tools that has been used in the past 15 years, 20 years has been brand ambassadors. My fundamental problem with that is they're uneconomical and they're not scalable. So,
2: are brand ambassadors what what older people call influencers?
1: They were before there was an internet.
2: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: So, brand ambassadors were defined as "quote unquote" feet on the street, boots on the ground, people that you employ to basically shadow what the distributor sales force is doing and generate sales to deliver to them, do their job for them, or that's the way it's it's, it's expressed. It was never efficient. It was a new thing and it was a valuable way of differentiating yourself from other brands. Then it became everybody was doing it and therefore it had no value when you were the 12th guy selling scotch walking into a a bar saying, I'm from such and such scotch company and I'm here to help. And how much help can they really stand is, is the answer. So rather than that, I think what's happened is that's been supplanted by this much more efficient scalable cost efficient efficient and scalable call it a tool if we want i call it optimizing your brand content online
2: however it gets done
1: beyond the fact of doing it once but it's also evergreen and scrapable ergo the efficiency can you comment on that
2: so very interesting so one of the challenges of of updating content is that you know you change your packaging you need to update content or you you know have a retailer that just has old Content systems, or like an intern entering the data, and mistakes are made constantly. And so, you know, I would actually, when you said evergreen, I assume that you mean you like there's an impression that you only have to update content once, but the reality is you need to constantly be the
1: placeholder is there. It's up to you to make sure that it's.
2: You're right. What what ends up happening is if you don't send a retailer content, either your product doesn't have an image next to it, which means nobody will buy it because nobody knows what your product is and what they're buying, and the moment a consumer feels unsure or indecisive or uh, confused, they stop and they buy your competitor's brand. But yeah, that that is that's a very good, good, good point there. One of the
1: tools that people can use, I do it in my book, pages 259 to 263, which was basically a set of facts I put together with WineSearcher saying, this is the content we want. This is the format in which we want it. That can function as a template for when you assign somebody with the responsibility of optimizing content, you give them those pages and you say, "Do this. You address the same things in your e-commerce playbook. One of the things I meant to ask when you mentioned it or when I addressed it earlier, can people get a copy of this thing? Is it readily available?
2: yeah, um I'm a man of the people. Uh, it is free to the public because so many people in the industry contributed to it. So I probably spoke with fifty people and they all made it possible for the report to get published. so it's public. And speaking, speaking to that, um, about managing your brand's content online, this is actually one of those areas where I think it's really okay for you to hire a gun for the job, right? I think it is perfectly okay for you to go out and, and there
1: As opposed to a sign from existing.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it's just kind of complicated. And if you're under-resourced and don't have the bandwidth to do it, like there are services out there uh, to, to help brands get this off the ground. It's okay to do that. Small brands don't have the, the capacity to just get things done. So, you know, there are services out there that help you with it. And I'm okay with that.
1: Answer the argument somebody says, Well, I'm not big enough, I can't afford somebody. Well, don't hire an FTE, full time employee. Go find somebody who can do this job and just this job on a contract basis. I, the issue is I think there's a lot of reasons people come up with why they don't do it, and none of them are sufficient either together or on their own. It's just the entity saying, no, I don't see that as a business priority for us. And what we're saying here is it absolutely is.
2: And, you know, the, the the main reason that companies hadn't invested in e-commerce in the past is they would point to the top line sales number that I would produce and go, yeah, 1% of sales. It's 2% of sales. It's 3% of sales. And then it's like, yeah, but, you know, uh, and this is the example I got from, from a, a buddy of mine, Wayne Duan, Uh, who is the VP of e-commerce at Constellation Brands, um, you know, they they basically said, yes, okay. You know, 3% of your sales on, you know, Total Wine & More are online. It's actually a lot more than that for them, but let's just say that 3% of your sales on Total Wine & More is that. You know, of the 97%, like 40% of that is digitally influenced sales, right? So in reality, it's much closer to like 45, 50% of your business on Total Wine & More is impacted by your brand's digital content and your brand's presence online. And if that's the the actual impact, then you invest differently. And so that's always my constant reminder is the reason you aren't investing in e-commerce is because you do not understand how absolutely important it is to your brand's performance online and off. Therefore, invest more than you are. And I think if you do understand that and you internalize that, hiring one full-time employee is no longer uh, a question is, how many?
1: Yeah, so not doing it is not an option. It's kind of not just mission critical. It's We're all living in a world that's where the standards are defined by Amazon and um, some of the big social media platforms, and we're competing in a world that... Well, we're competing in a world where they set the standards, and we have to live up to those standards to be equal. Otherwise, we're seen as inferior, and they'll go someplace else to buy. Yeah. Okay, moving the conversation a little bit further, you had said at one point that uh, retailers, who have been the backbone of the business, and I'm differentiating this from um, the supermarket side of the business, which we might get to
2: later. Mom and pop shops—they're—they're
1: they're worried, rightfully, I think, that Drizzly is taking over the relationship with consumers. In fact, it is. You quoted Mike Fish, uh, and I interviewed his dad, Gary Fish, of Gary's Wines and Marketplace in New Jersey. He said it, I thought, very, very eloquently. He said, Drizzly helps me sell bottles, but City Hive helps me build my business. City Hive is a, I'll let you describe it.
2: Yeah, I think it's really important. So Drizzly is a, you know, a marketplace, right? So you shop brands and order brands, and the retailer is basically the fulfillment partner, right? They don't really get to, to be in front of the consumer at all whereas city hive is basically like shopify for alcohol retailers which is you know to say that that um you know you build your own branded website and and sell to the consumer through you know a product page that for all intents and purposes appears to be run by you but in reality the back end is completely run by by you know this third party city hive and so yeah i i think that there's a big issue with with uh companies like drizzly they they tend to Charge more for retailers, and uh, in terms of uh, percentage of transactions, and the consumer buys alcohol without ever interacting with the retailer's brand. Um, and so, there's a huge incentive for uh, retailers to, you know, push grizzly traffic to their own uh, website so that they can control that customer relationship.
1: And I think uh, people are recognizing that. Certainly, I am when I think about ordering food online. I always opt to go to the restaurant itself as opposed to Grubhub or something like that. And the same thing with tips; I'd rather give them as cash to the delivery guy rather than include it on the thing. But I don't, I don't think that's that common. How do how do online sales differ from in-store sales beyond what we've just been talking about? In this case, it was who owns the data—the retailer or not? But from from the perspective of the consumer and where they get information and how they're confronted with information. Can you elaborate on that a little
2: bit? So a couple of things. Online shopping is fundamentally a different consumer. Um, so so uh, it's important to understand that there is no online consumer. There's basically just omni-channel consumers. So even Consumers that buy alcohol online, the likelihood is the vast majority of their alcohol purchases are in-store. So people who shop online also shop in-store and often from the same retailer. It just so happens that the people who do shop online tend to be wealthier. That means they have a, you know, tend to demand much higher priced, more premium products. So the online space tends to, you know, you would look at uh, craft beer selling better than domestic beer, for example. The average wine price on, a you know, wine.com is going to be in the $20, 30 range, whereas the total U.S. Uh, it's you know, closer to $10, 11 um, So you've got a more premium consumer. You know, they also tend to buy larger pack sizes. And I think that is both a function of, you know, the fact that buying online means you don't have to carry it home. Uh, somebody else carries it for you a lot of times, but but also the fact that uh, richer people can buy in bulk because they have the resources to do it. And so there's a element of bulk buying in online. But once a consumer does get to the online space, it's really important to understand that one, they're almost always going to buy the first product that they see, not the first product, but the first few products they see. If you're on the second page of search results, something like 80% of consumers are never going to are never going to see the second page. But even then, um, once consumers buy your product, they tend to keep reordering the same thing over and over again because it's a very efficient process typically. So if somebody bought your wine once and they like it, chances are it's going to be right there in their basket. They're going to go back, log in, fill out their grocery order or whatever they're doing and just click buy again. Whereas in the the in-store environment, Chances are they're going to get distracted by an opportunity to buy a brand on discount or there's a lot more stimulation. And so there's a lot less brand loyalty in store than there is online, which is one reason it's so important to get the first sale and be the first brand in their basket because it pays off long term in terms of lifetime customer value. So
1: it sounds like online should be a primary strategy for export or what we would call imported brands, they're selling wine at at a higher price where the wine that is purchased is purchased at a higher price and there is more of an opportunity to um, establish some level of, of repeat purchase or you can use the word brand loyalty. And yet, most of the export producers that I talk with and work with don't get this, don't do that, don't recognize this. Why is that?
2: It's the same stuff we talked about, right? It's not understanding the the role of digitally influenced sales. It's not understanding um, the size of the market or necessarily the opportunity for your brand in, in particular. Right. If you're you know, not aware that, you know, consumers are looking for premium products in the twenty dollar, twenty five dollar price point as the norm, then you might not recognize that that's a, the key opportunity for, for your brand. Um, so it's underestimating the size of the market, underestimating the uh, the scope of uh, the impact of, of your brand's digital presence. Yeah, it's over and over again.
1: I think a big part, too, is kind of the fundamental thing I've been wrestling with for years is that it's lack of understanding of how the U.S. market operates. They may be able to sell to somebody in Germany, and that person takes on the responsibility of marketing that brand through the supermarkets or something like that. That's not the way it works here. It's not one country. It's 52 different regulatory entities, and you can't think of the United States that way. But going forward with this, there have been a couple of uh, significant strides made in the way people shop for wines when I think about label recognition technology and i've seen the dynamics of that be really really significant. Can you talk about the significance of lo- label recognition technology and how it has played out for the drizzlies of the world?
2: I'm looking at something like Vivino. Is that is that kind of what you're talking about? You know, Vivino is what i use when i go to buy wine. Why? Because there's so much stuff there. I don't know what to 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 pick out. So i scan until i find a wine with a high rating and a low price point and i buy that. And oftentimes it's okay. So you know that is uh, a digitally influenced sale to a degree. Um, again, people will scan your wine; they'll read about it on Vivino, and you need to make sure your content's updated on Vivino. And you know, just as uh, you know, and then say, somebody, hey, I'm discovered your wine using the scanning technology, and now I'm going to search for your winery into Google. Well, guess what? Uh, the chances are they're going to end up on a retail website anyways. (laughs) So now, instead of finding your website, um, you know, this person's shopped on Drizzly historically, so they're going to the retail page on Drizzly or the product page on Drizzly, and that's where they learn about your brand. That's where they understand the history of your winery and your product. So, you know, oftentimes uh, you know, people just don't end up on your website, end up on other people's um, regardless of where they started, whether that's a scanning technology or, you know, already on a retailer website.
1: We began this conversation talking about, you call mom and pop, I call independence, but what we, other people call brick and mortar, um, retailers' stores. The one piece that we haven't addressed here and, and does play prominently in the uh, 2020 or e-commerce playbook 2022 is grocery. And a lot of times I find, again, for export brands that they want to get into the grocery market. And they said, yeah, I want to sell in supermarkets in New York. Well, that's not going to happen. Right, it's an indication that they don't know what's going on. But there's a completely different set of products that retailers are going to carry on the grocery aisle that are already proven, rather than new and to be discovered items. How do I communicate that <laughs> to my clients that that that's not where you want to be? Grocery is maybe where you end up with your entry level products.
2: Yeah, I guess that's just a go to market strategy. And you know, when it comes to e-commerce, because I guess that's the the framework we're using, you know. There isn't basically all grocery sales are executed from online anyways, from the retail shelf. Basically they pay somebody to put product on the shelf and then they pay somebody to take it off again and hand it to a driver to deliver it to your home. Uh so if you don't have distribution in a grocery store, you're not gonna be able to sell through a grocery store online. That might change in the future in terms of, you know, using different fulfillment modalities, but for the most part, you know, that's not where you start in the market. Though I do think there's a really good point here, which is this concept of brands are built in the on-premise, right? And I think that's relevant here as well, uh, which is to say that, you know, if, you know, a lot of times you're selling through smaller outlets and on-premise accounts, because that is a sell story. You are selling as much as you can through those channels and supporting your brand and showing, hey, you can perform well, you know, in on-premise accounts and in all these mom and pop shops. And you are able to tell that story to your distributor. And then you get the great distributor and then you're, that distributor then gets excited and, and then pitches it to the, the, the retailer. It's how you win allies is the on-premise. And it's not necessarily a consumer-facing function, but is a trade-facing one. And I guess there are similar opportunities in the online space as well but for the most part it's not necessarily an e-commerce commentary there but you know to me the magic thing about you know brands are built in the on-premises as an adage is just as much a a trade-facing activity as a um you know consumer-facing one so you know yeah i I agree it's kind of
1: it's too simple to be of any value in the world that's with such fragmented communications and sales opportunities as, as we live in
2: yeah and so yeah that that would be you know basically what what you know, we're both agreeing then is that, hey, build your brands in these channels that have lower barriers to entry and prove you can perform. And then you get to go and knock on the door of the big boys. But for now, in, you can't just skip all those those steps. But anyway, bringing
1: this all around, uh, I like to end my uh, interviews with asking people, what's the big takeaway? What's the practical thing that they can put to work Immediately, and I think this is one of the most unique interviews I've done. Where we we told them what we were going to tell them. We told them, and now you're going to tell them again. What did we tell them?
2: Yeah, you know, read the report, the 2020 um, Alcoholic Commerce Playbook. It's going to, to give much more concise and direct details than than I can here. But I, what I will say is, you know, I got asked, what do you want a CEO to to learn from from this research you're doing? What do you want them to feel? And first thing I I want to make them really uncomfortable. I want to make it super clear that, you know, not investing in e-commerce is a really bad decision, but also it's something you should see coming. Um, I spoke to the the, uh, top investor from wine.com and asked them, hey, you know, you've been the main investor of wine.com for, what, 20 years now? Like, why do you keep at it? And they said, every year I look in the calendar and I say, next year, is e-commerce going to grow? And every year the answer is yes. And so the reality is, is that you can look 10, 20, 25 years down the road and say, yep, e-commerce is going to keep growing. And it's growing not only in terms of importance of, of, you know, top line sales, but also in terms of brand building. So, you know, you as a brand um, can see the writing on the wall because it's obvious that e-commerce is going to keep growing. And if you don't invest now, you're going to have to invest a lot more to catch up. So that's my message. You know, be uncomfortable. And know that, you know, you, if you don't do it now, it only gets worse.
1: I would urge everyone who's listening to get a copy of uh, the e-commerce playbook 2022, because I think Burkhart does a fabulous job of articulating it all and putting it into context more than we can do in a conversation like this. If we had a couple of hours, maybe, but given the time constraints. So I want to thank you for sharing uh, that knowledge, uh, wisdom, insight. And uh, it's not a look over the horizon, people. It's where we are today. Uh, so get with the program or get out of the business. might be that simple. Uh, so thank you, Burkhart, for, uh, for joining us today. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in person somewhere. We've Zoomed a lot, but not uh, met in person.
2: Yeah, we're, we're opening back up. If you can't see me in person, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is podcast. My podcast is called Liquid Assets, and I work for a place called Rabobank. And if you want to find the report, it's available at research.rabobank.com. And leave Steve a review. It helps other people discover his podcast. And I will be immediately stopping this recording and I will be going on to Apple Podcasts. And I'm going to leave him a little five-star gift. uh, And and I I think he deserves that. Thank you very much, Burkhart.
1: Well, that's it for this week. Tune in next week and we'll have another interesting
2: interview. Thank you. As interesting, though? More interesting than, than me. Okay. Another inter- Okay. Yeah.
1: I didn't say that. I, I, I didn't say that on purpose. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Veneti Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at International.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com.